Hi, I'm Jen. And I'm Jen. Welcome to Marjadelia Pod. Where we treat reading as a sacred practice and find meaning and connections through our favourite books. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Gurangai and Darug people, traditional custodians of the land where I'm recording today, and pay my respects to their elders past and present. I'd also like to acknowledge Manafenua of Tifanganui Atara, where I'm recording today. It's a one-shot! It is a one-shot, and it's not a book, which is exciting. So this week we're reading Tarsim Singh's film The Fall through themes of despair and innocence. Um, I thought we should just offer a content warning as well because one of the main themes in the film is actual suicidal ideation. Mm -hmm. So there will probably be mentions of that throughout the episode. Yeah, we'll put some links in the show notes if you need any help or support in that area. But if it's just too much for you, feel free to skip this one. Yeah, it is quite a lot. Um, so I took the theme of despair and you had the theme of innocence. So did you want to tell us a story about innocence? Yeah, I actually kind of want to talk about it. It's not a story about myself so much, but it is a story about what it's like to be a parent and to see children. Um, because this is a movie about a child's interpretation of a story that's being told to her. Um Something that really bothers me in every TV show, every sitcom, every movie is that the kids are really articulate and they know exactly what they're going to say and they're as funny as adults. And that is just not how kids are. Mm. So when you watch this movie, you get to see a kid mishear things and say what and smile and tell (laughs) fibs and like react naturally. You believe it because it's genuinely what it's like to be around a child. Um, So I know that my kids especially, having not had their speech come along on their right targets, we had to do a lot of guesswork with what they understood and what they didn't know and what they did understand and what they could tell. So when I watched this the first time, I think my little ones were still very little and we were just at the Mm. beginning of our speech therapy journeys and now that my kids are both old enough and talking I was able to kind of look at it through this this lens of like knowing how to communicate with somebody and persisting in that and how there is this real innocence in her desire to connect but also she doesn't have all of the right words she doesn't have all of the right concepts she's not quite able to link what she needs to say to get the ideas out properly so that mm. Roy can understand her but he persists and i thought there was something really beautiful about that like the miscommunications that they have are part of the story but they're also like he doesn't really hold it against her yeah it is it's like yeah he is very patient with her and it's one of the things i really love like you know when she's misunderstanding him or not answering his questions he's really good at just kind of getting her there yeah Yeah. and so I just kept thinking there was a lot of innocence in that and I also want to just touch on the idea that there's this real Victorian concept of children being like innocent and that they're closer to God so they're holier or better little Lord Fauntleroy is like the ultimate example (laughs) of this children are not innocent they are id Hmm. they just want what they want they have needs that need meeting but they can still be capable of great goodness great kindness and great love yeah not so much a story but just a little bit of commentary and like I really love that this little girl's childhood while it has been very hard still retains that magic and innocence yeah it's kind of just the the capacity of kids to hold on to that innocence right like even in the face of really traumatic things you see it at funerals sometimes kids know that there's something terrible happening and then next minute they're running around playing with their friends having a great time yeah they just have this capacity to I guess separate those things they have the range they can feel it all Mm. that's all they do is feel all the time 
So how about you? Did you have a despairing story? Well, uh, you know me, love a bit of despair. (laughs) We have highs, we have lows. You can't have valleys without mountains. So the first time I saw this film must have been 2013 and my BFF Frank had shown it to me. And he's like, you're going to love this film. We have to watch it. And so we watched it. And of course I did love it. And I ended up getting the DVD and I've seen it a couple of times since, but I haven't watched it in quite a long time, probably Mm. like four years. And so when I sat down to watch it, I was just really struck by Roy's despair because basically since I was 14, I've struggled with depression. I fell into a very deep depressive episode when I was around 14 that lasted for like a year. And ever since then, I've had moments where I'm up and down and sometimes I'm really depressed and sometimes I'm fine. I'm not sure if that's something that's going to keep continuing for me. It might do, it might not. I don't know. We'll see. You know how it is with these things. You just don't know. Um, But in 2019, I had a severe mental breakdown basically where I was actually suicidal and so I hadn't seen this film since then so watching Roy go through that and suddenly having that frame of reference where I remember waking up in the night and sitting up and being like I actually don't want to be alive anymore and having that intrinsic feeling and seeing him go through that is quite a different way to to view the film so it was quite different yeah it was just a different context to to watch the film through so Yeah. yeah I'm sorry. That sucks. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't great, but it did push me to get help that I needed, so. And I think that's really massively changed my life. Like, really, really hugely. I feel like I've fundamentally shifted the way my brain works because I went and got therapy and I specifically got therapy for PTSD and also did EMDR therapy, which changed my life. So I think... Since then, I haven't had a depressive episode, so I don't know. I don't know if my brain has changed like that. You just, yeah. so much of our brains is a mystery, right? So you, you recognize it, right? And you'll be able to oh yeah tell yourself what to do next and like go and get and, the help you need. Yeah, and I've got the strategies and everything in place. And I've got, yeah, really good support systems and stuff like that. You know, when you fall, hopefully you don't fall so far because you know what to do. Exactly. So yeah, I just thought it was interesting to watch it from that point of view. But... It is a beautiful film. I think it's one of the most astonishingly beautifully shot films. It's like visually. Gorgeous. And it holds up. You know, mm. it came out in what, 2008? It's still mm. on point. The more you watch it, the more you see. And I really appreciate that. Yeah. It's definitely got a lot of little callbacks that you notice, which mm. you don't notice the first time. Every time I'm like, oh yeah, so that comes back later. And just like little imagery that it's very cyclical yeah. as well. So yeah. Lovely. Yeah. Um, did you want to give us a quick summary of what the film is about? Ooh, yes. Okay, so it's about... A f- well, it's called The Fall, and there are actually three falls. Um, but we meet Alexandria, who's this child recovering from a broken arm in a hospital sometime in the early 1900s. Uh, Alexandria meets Roy Walker, who's an injured movie stuntman at this hospital. He starts to tell her a story about six heroes who are on a quest to kill the evil governor, Odious. So that's how it Mm. starts. And it just follows the story as he tells it and how she interprets it. Which is one of the beautiful things, right? Like it's, it's so much about storytelling in a way. Like he is the storyteller and she is the listener. But I love the discrepancies about she can only, she can only interpret the story within her own frame of reference. So when he mentions things that she doesn't understand, she interprets it in a very particular way. So the one that really stood out to me was when he talks about the blue bandit and how the crew and the blue bandit have been hung and she has this image of them basically 
as a chandelier because she doesn't understand what hanging is. Yeah, they're hanging in the they they're in the chandelier room and they've been hung and so the, they're decorated. They're like a decorative chandelier. These bodies. Yeah, and it's grotesque, but also it looks like I don't know. You would see it in a, a modern art museum too. In the Czech Republic, there's this place called Kutnahora, and it's basically a bone church. The entire church is made up of mm. human bones on the inside, and so it is bone candelabras and things like that, and it is dark AF. <laughs> but I love that. One of my favorite things was in Paris going to the catacombs. Mm. There's something really special about the observance of human remains. Like, you don't know whose femur that is in that wall of fevers, but it's somebody's and it's been cared for and stacked up and, and put together in such a way that it can be visited and, like, honored in its own way. Bone church, huh? Mm. I'll have to put that on my list of, like, places in Europe to go. Yeah. It is pretty bleak, but it was also a very bleak day when I was there, so maybe that contributed to my <laughs> interpretations. Um, so you took despair, which I'm feeling I very did. guilty about now. No, it was really great. <laughs> um, I just, I thought, I saw despair everywhere in this film. Yeah. I think mainly Roy is just the embodiment of despair, right? If we yeah. think about despair as a complete loss or absence of hope, well, Roy has lost all hope. Both because he's injured and he can't walk, and also because he has a broken heart, right? Like his yeah. girlfriend has left him for another man and um, he's in hospital and he has no future that he can see. And so he just gives up essentially. And this like manifests through his desire to take his own life and also his manipulation of Alexandria in order to achieve that. Like I think yeah. I really noticed the manipulation this time around, which is something I hadn't really noticed on previous watchings. Like, yes, he's doing it, but it's so calculated. It was like Dumbledorean. Yeah, calculation. it made me furious, actually, because a lot of the things in there are stuff that you tell your kids to keep them safe. Like, we don't have body secrets and we don't have secrets about things mm. like that. Like, it, it raised all of my parent hackles. Yeah, because there's that one point where, you know, oh, it's our secret. It's a bandit secret and all these things. And then yeah. at the end, she she's like, I didn't tell them even when they tortured me with oh. needles. I didn't tell them. I'm like, no, this is so dark. Oh, man, that that got me like that. I just want to cry thinking about it like her loyalty to him is such an amazing thing it is such a beautiful expression of the most innocent love mm. he's an absolute heel for doing that to her i know that's one of the things that really gets him right like he knows how terrible he is at the end there and that adds to his misery because he thought that he was miserable already and then he realizes like oh no i could feel even worse about myself i didn't realize there was a lower point for me to go yep because it's like he he only really considered romantic love right like he's thinking oh my heart's broken and there's no reason to live but he hasn't taken into account that someone could love you so innocently and so completely and that's what alexandria does like she loves in that way that children yeah. love where yeah. they don't have any hang-ups they just love you and then that kind of brings him to a new awareness that he didn't have before yeah i agree noticing this time around that that dog was his was another thing i was like but you have a dog you can't leave your dog oh no what a cute dog too it's a really cute dog but he does need like a person to help him yeah and you're right that it can't be romantic because he doesn't trust romantic love no um I guess I've been thinking of marginalia in terms of specific scenes that I thought I could talk about yeah. in terms of despair. So for Roy, I think one that really stood out to me was the Eucharist scene. Yeah, so, you know. me too. I love that. Because she comes in with the little Eucharist that she's stolen from the church. And um, he they have that whole exchange where he's like, you know, are you trying to save my soul? And she doesn't understand. Hmm. And he says, you know, are you worried about me? Do you even know what a soul is? And, you know, like, 
it's like strength. And I thought that was so interesting that he, he equated the soul with strength. I wonder if he thinks he's already a lost soul and that's why he feels... Because he calls himself a coward and he says he's weak, which isn't mm-hmm. the case because, you know, when, you're, when, you're, when you have depression, you're fighting constantly. Mm-hmm. And that makes you stronger whether you like it or not. Like, you're just... It's awful. It's a grind. It's unending. It's horrible. You've been there. I've been there. Like, depression mm-hmm. is a liar and it's a weight and it's a burden. But he's not a coward. He's just tired. And I get that. Yeah. Um, but his strength isn't in whether or not he has a soul. But I do love that he yeah. spent that time with her kind of trying to figure out if she's like, like, was it a joke to him that he then felt like he had to explain to her? Um, she kind yeah. of did, though, didn't she? In her innocence, yeah. she did save his soul a little bit. It's almost like he wanted her, you know, he's asking her, are you worried about me? It's like he wants someone to be worried about him. Because mm. I feel like he's always more miserable when he gets a visit from his friend the his one-legged friend of the studio guys when they're there like he always seems he's most miserable after that and it's after those visits that he really he's motivated to ask alexandra for the pills it's after both those visits that he really pushes her to like go get me some pills please yeah. even though he's so manipulative in that when he's like you know i'm having a hard time sleeping and i can't remember the story i need pills to to do that and it's like yeah. you are so awful <laughs> Like, you do have to fake a lot when you have kids to, like, get them to do stuff. So this week we've been having an unending battle with my son because he wants to play his Nintendo constantly. And (laughs) we're taking it like it's a clean break because we're just not having it during the holidays. But there was so much about him just asking me 60, 70 times a day, where's my DS? Where's my DS? I want my DS. Okay, I'm calm now. Can I have my DS? And finally, I was just like, I don't know. Maybe it's on holiday. I can't remember. Did you look under your bed? Like, I'm straight up lying to my child because I'm getting this question so much. And he's smart enough now that I can't really, like, fob him off or distract him. Yeah. But I also don't want to be like, I'm taking it away from you because it's making you crazy because that won't help. No. So I I recognize, like, you get them around to your point of view by explaining things in a way that they understand. But you don't do it for evil, Roy. You don't do it for evil. And that's what he was. He was doing that to achieve an end that he should not have made a little girl complicit in. And I mean, he knows that it's wrong, right? Because he even says to her, you know, I'm sorry when he's taking those pills, Walt's pills, the sugar pills. And he's like, you know, I don't want you to see me like this. Don't come back tomorrow. He doesn't want that on her. Yeah. And yet it's on her regardless because he's already involved her. Like, so her despair when she the next day thinks that he's dead, you know, she oh. sees that body on the gurney and she like freaks out. Ugh, it's just so that's her moment of despair, right? Absolutely. For all her despair is mainly related to Roy. Like she thinks he's died. She's already seen that mum crying over her son who died from the rattlesnake bite. And she saw yeah. that mum pinch the kid's toe the same way that Roy asked her to pinch his toe and so when she sees the body she goes and she tries to pinch the toe and gets him to wake up and that is just like devastating and then she writes herself into the story when Roy starts blacking out because she's like well I have to take control here because clearly you've lost the plot right yeah when she's trying to wake him up and she's like you know it's not the time to sleep now it's just it's so honest too like I just can't get over this. Like the way that, so the way that Tarsim Singh made this movie was, I think there was the idea of how it would happen. And then he basically found the perfect kid. It is Katinka Untaru. Yeah. Katinka Untaru. And she is absolutely brilliant because they have this real relationship. And he, like a lot of the filmmaking technique, he talked about how they would film through like a pinhole in the, the sheet so that they kept that like little cocoon of where they're talking to each other, just the two of them. Mm. 
So you really feel their connection and you feel their love. And and so much of the dialogue is what she is saying. And then they yeah. went and created the rest of the scenes around it. Yeah, and she is not an actress. So they kind of... Yeah, the script was never finished because they did all that fantasy stuff based on where she was going and things she was saying, right? So that's like yeah. real organic creation process i mean it is such a labor of love this film like he spent his own money on it it took four years to make or something but what a what a piece of filmmaking like it's just incredible it really is it surprises me that more people don't know about it yeah i think it's one of those ones that's very divisive though because like i said there are people who just don't expect a kid to like on film act like a child yeah i think it's also quite old-fashioned like i i find this quite a lot when i watch older films like you know films from the the 50s or whatever films were a lot slower back then Mm. like you could watch a film and it would be the simplest story and i'd be like why is this film two hours long why has no one said something on screen for 10 minutes i don't understand what's happening like even Casablanca, which is one of my favorites, sometimes I'm just like, wow, this is taking forever to get somewhere, which I love. But it's just not how modern audiences view. Yeah. It's just not how our films are right now. Like the idea that you would have moments of no dialogue or something in a film seems very unusual. And I can get that it's probably too abstract for people. Like I don't think it was ever going to be a blockbuster. But for what it is as a piece of art, I think it's definitely worth acknowledging yeah i think it's an incredible it's it's something that is very personal right like it's something that he made because he had to make it and it is just the the scenery and the fact that he spent his own money and went at like went out of his way to make it and picked the perfect kid and Mm. lee pace who is arguably the perfect man he's phenomenal in this like actual just goosebumps like he is just so good he hits every note. And this is the thing about Lee Pace. So there are a few actors who, like, I forget that they're not their character. Yeah. Jen, don't get me started on oh, no. Lee Pace. Look, you said there was going to be a thirst moment. I think now's the right time. Okay, look, Jen, I kind of want to lick him. And um, that's problematic. I've told you what my friend Anne said. She said he's the kind of man you want to climb like a tree. He just has the most perfect face. And also the costume and the design in this film is off the charts. Not just because all the costumes are absolutely beautiful, but also because Lee Pei spends most of it sleeveless. Mm. And his arms should win like a best supporting actor because they are phenomenal. Like I'm not normally an arm person. Like, you know, some girls get really into arms. Like I'm not normally like that. But, but they're the not like beefcake arms. They're just really, he's like solid. That's the thing. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's because he's like tall and broad, but he's not like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's not dehydrated and his muscles aren't sticking out. Like this isn't like an ideal body. This is like a real human being. And that's part of the appeal, right? Like he looks like an actual person. That's the thing. Like everything about him is he's a real human being. He's just like a real, He, you just feel like you could have a really nice chat with him and he seems like a nice guy and just yeah. he's beautiful. <laughs> And I think he has a dog also in real life. And also I read this interview with him where he said if he wasn't acting, he would just, uh, he's like, I don't know what I do. I just go live on a farm. (laughs) Cool. I'll do that with you. Let's go. I just need more Lee Pace and everything. Why is he not like a leading man? I don't understand it. He's too tall and he makes the short actors feel bad about themselves. Good. They should. I was talking with my brother-in-law and he's read some of those Jack Reacher stories and Jack Reacher is apparently like meant to be 6'5 and Tom Cruise is currently playing Jack Reacher and Tom Cruise is like 5'2 and I was just like that's not fair Lee Pace is right there yeah I don't get it someone who looks like that and who is so such a good actor and so emotive and like why why is what what are you doing why is he not in everything he's become 
the perfect candidate for Draco's dad. Oh, don't do this to me. Am I wrong, though? <laughs> don't. <laughs> dying. <laughs> Please. My heart. I cannot cope with this. Right, though? Right? Look, I also have the Lee Pace thirst. And um, I think the first time I watched The Fall was the result of a Lee Pace appreciation night that I may or may not have instigated. So, yeah. Um, our friend Chris actually cosplayed the bandit one year. At, oh, um, nice. What's it called? Supernova? That's the one they do here. Yeah. So she made a jacket and she made a hat and she made the big pants and made the belt and it. everything. It was incredible. It was an incredible cosplay. That's a great costume. The costume design, incredible in this film. Like all the visual elements, just perfect. Yeah, the costume designer, um, Aiko something. She's amazing. And like the one that really gets me every time is the princess's veil, which then mm. flips up. Like yeah. it has a hinge and it flips connects at the top so that you can have it down or have it up so clever um should i talk a little bit about innocence yes please um so i kept going back and forth about what i really wanted innocence to be here because like it's the obvious like oh innocent is purity i don't know i don't like i don't like that so much i thought more like the state of being naive or guileless or even like just sincere innocence is sincerity or harmlessness but i ended up settling on how innocence in this way is like ignorance like oh I'm innocent of the knowledge and that harkens back to a bit of a biblical concept of like you eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil Mm -hmm. like if you don't know Mm -hmm. you can't sin I guess and um there's so many things that Alexandria doesn't know like she doesn't Mm. know that Roy is tricking her she's innocent of that but she still gets the benefit of loving him and loving his stories and even though he was gaining her trust as a means to his end, um, she still gets the story and she gets mm. that connection, which she so desperately needs. You can see how lonely she is. Yeah. She has nothing to do and she's been there long enough that everyone knows who she is. Yeah. And she's clearly like one of those extroverted kids that walks around talking to everyone. Like the Iceman knows who she is and the, yeah. she's throwing oranges at the priest and everyone knows she's doing <laughs> yeah. that. I love the fact that she's been there long enough that she's part of the furniture and they just don't question her presence in all of these places. But also it makes me really sad because this is a kid who's used to interacting with adults and needs that and like needs that input and isn't getting it. Mm. There's just no one for these kids. Um, I think there's a bit of ignorance in the fact that Roy... He's innocent of what his future might be. He doesn't know if he's going to fall in love again or if his life will be better. And even the people who come and try to reassure him that it will be better, he's never really quite convinced. Mm. But because of that ignorance, that innocence, he, he doesn't, he isn't able to see what might be coming that's good. Um, yeah. He's just overwhelmed with his despair in like the moment. He's just in this miring pit and he can't get out of it. Yeah. And like the doctor says to him in that scene where Alexandria is recovering before he goes in to talk to her, the doctor says, you know, to get better, you have to have the will, your own desire to live. And that's the thing. He just doesn't have that. He hasn't bought into the fact that he has a future, right? Yeah. He can't see any other way than the one he was at. He's college educated mm-hmm. um, because his stuntman friend tells him like, what? come on, you're a college boy. Mm. which I think is partly why he's able to draw these fantastic stories and like maybe he studied history because he keeps coming back to the epics and and there's some really great lines in there as well that kind of shows that intellectualism as Mm. well like especially in Darwin's death I thought that was so funny like there's that bit where he says like you know they'll pay you well for Darwin's hide and then he's like oh you know it was the natural order of things like it's so clever yeah yeah and Darwin actually did have a friend named Wallace who basically came up with the idea of evolution at the same time and gets almost no credit for it. Like, they were of colleagues. Course. Oh, annoying. So that's legitimate. <laughs> Except Wallace was a person and not a monkey. 
Um, I think that there's a lot of innocence in Alexandria's interactions with everybody. She really does just think of everyone as being like, okay, until they're proven not. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is a kid who's had a lot of trauma in her life. Like we, I think I'd like to spend a minute talking about her family. So she's Romanian. Mm-hmm. Her parents emigrated or her mother emigrated. Her father was killed when thieves came to their farm, burned it down and stole their horse. And so you have a widowed woman who doesn't speak the language picking oranges in California in the 1910s, 1920s. Like, this is a lot for one kid to process. And she often struggles, right? Like, she still wets herself when she's stressed Mm -hmm. out or upset. Like, she has accidents. Once after she sees the snake-bitten boy, and then once while Roy is yelling at Walt about the sugar pills. So she's still quite little, and there's a lot of innocence with that. Um, But she's really creative. She's really curious. She's really open to love. She hasn't really learned yet that, like, you can get hurt loving people she just does it instinctively she wants to connect and she wants to make friends and she wants to hear the end of the story and i love that i love that she's Mm. not closed off yet i think that's one of the biggest indicators of innocence um i also like that she's not perfect but she is like a perfect example of what a kid is yeah licking the ice when she knows she's not supposed to (laughs) and throwing oranges at the priest that's so naughty and then she's like i'm not doing it so funny it's such an obvious lie too whatever you need to tell yourself kid it's like that scene where she's pinching Roy's toe and he's like are you lying to me she's like uh-uh uh-huh uh-uh and he's like which is it is it yes or no yeah well she wasn't because she then moved to pinch his big toe but I thought that was an act of love she wanted to be doing the right thing for him because she yeah. wanted him to be happy my daughter's exactly the same way she wants to be agreeable even if she doesn't understand she'll smile and nod I have to really be on guard to be like okay did you actually understand what I said then or were you just agreeing? I still do that when, you know, you've asked someone to repeat themselves twice. And by that point, I'm like, well, I guess I'll never know. I can't ask another time. Yeah. Just like, uh uh-huh. Yeah, I struggle with that too. I think even though she's a very innocent person, like she doesn't really know what's going on. She's ignorant of a lot of things. She understands when bad things are going to happen. So, you know, the angry people are coming. The angry people are coming. She's very afraid of that happening again. She doesn't like it when people are angry because it immediately recalls the trauma of her father's death and their horse being stolen and their home being burned down. So the angry mother over the boy was a trigger for her. Walt screaming at her. Walt and Roy having a big fight was a big trigger for her. I also love that she was uh, terrified of the x-ray technician. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I love that their suits then became what the bad guys were wearing in her in the story. Very childlike thing. Oh, and she was so scared of being chopped in surgery it felt like the way that the surgery was described and I assume that what had happened is she had a fall and they had to kind of drill a little bit to relieve pressure on her skull Mm -hmm. because her head's bandaged but she still has hair so that's what I'm assuming but she seemed to be aware enough of it happening that she could turn it into a story in her head with like a dolly Mm. which is really terrifying like I can't imagine being awake for something like that or being cognizant of something like that happening. Yeah, that would be a big no for me. Yeah, yeah. And she was still so worried about having let Roy down. Like, here she is lying in a hospital bed, no thought for herself. Yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't tell anybody, even though they tortured me. Like, oh my gosh, baby, she needs a hug. I mean, that whole hospital scene, that final scene is, it's a lot. Like, it's intense. It's just clear-cut despair for me. Like, especially the final confrontation between Odious and... Right. But even leading up to it, you know, like Roy is just like, 
I made it all up. I just made it. It's just a story. It was just a way for me to get you to do something for me. And then he starts killing everyone off. And she's like, why are you killing everyone? And he's like, it's my story. And she's like, it's mine too. And they have this whole thing. And she's like, you're making it up. And he's like, no, I'm not. And I'm like, but you are because it's a story. So you are making it up. But anyway. And he tries to like bring it back to a point. Like he tries to retcon it, right? He never swore an oath. Yes, he did. No, he was crossing his fingers the whole time. Yeah. Like he has to resort to these really childlike tricks to make it work for what he's trying to do there, which is to sever that connection between them in a way that he can live with. He wants her to hate him. Yeah, because there's so much hurt there. There's so much hurt, right? Like she's hurting because she loves him in that way that kids do and she doesn't understand why he's behaving the way that he is and he's so devastated by that original hurt that he had that's now compounded by the fact that he's hurt her yeah and he's like he's the reason that she's in the state that she's in and like that moment when he rests his head on her bed before promising not to kill himself like the absolute (laughs) despair in that moment just kills me like i've got that whole dialogue written down because he's like he can't win that's because our mask bandit is a coward he never took an oath. He's a fake. He's a liar and a coward. And she's like, you're lying. And I don't believe you. And he, Roy says, he's dying. And she just keeps saying, don't kill him. She loves him. And he says, she'll survive. She's good. I don't want you to die, Roy. Don't kill him. Like, she's already, she's she's made the connection that Roy and the bandit are one and the same, right? Like, that's come down now. And she's like begging him. Like, she's like, let him live. Let him live. And I'm like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm just gonna cry. <laughs> Oh, I am crying. <laughs> it's a lot. And it gets me every time. Like, I spend the last 15 minutes of the movie just, like, weeping. It's so vulnerable and so moving. This is an incredible bit of acting. It really is. Like, when he's, like, just crying and drinking and going through this whole thing. And it's just the whole thing is such a beautiful embodiment of storytelling, right? Like, you've got someone telling and someone listening and it's an interpretation. But it's also about love. Yeah. Because... You know, Roy is so lonely and heartbroken and crushed and he can't see a future, but Alexandra just loves him. She doesn't and it allows... need him to be whole or perfect. No, she doesn't need that from him. That allows him to reframe the story that he's telling himself about who he is, right? And to see it through her eyes, to see himself through her eyes. And that's essentially what lets him save himself. And that is so vulnerable and so powerful because if we saw ourselves through the eyes of people who loved us, who would we be? Yeah. Like if I... Like, who would we allow ourselves to be if we could tell those stories to ourselves instead of the ones that we do tell ourselves, which is often not very kind? Yeah. But then there's also just moments of genuine warmth and humour in this as well. Like, I think (laughs) there's some genuine funny moments. Like, I love the moment where, you know, he's going to shoot the princess and the locket stops it from happening. And then Luigi is reading the inscription on the locket and Roy's like, it says all of that on that little locket? (laughs) Yes. Love it. There was the same one where he had mis- he'd said, oh, and, you know, the bandit has vowed to kill every Spanish thing. Oh, I thought he was Spanish. No, he's French. Are you with me? Oui, mon capitaine. Yeah. <laughs> and it's never brought up again. <laughs> like, there are so many great moments like that where he kind of loses track of the story and she brings it back. Like, when she's like, what about the bomb? And he's like, what bomb? Oh, yeah, bomb. Oh, yeah, the bomb. <laughs> <laughs> so good. One other thing I was going to say about despair Hmm. is just that all of the heroes, so we've got our six heroes, but ignoring the the bandit, you know, they are all motivated by their despair. You've got Luigi, who has been exiled and abandoned. You've got the Indian who's lost his wife and swore an oath to never look at another woman again. You've got Otobinga, who was enslaved and is trying to, you know, get justice for his brother. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and the mystic who is mourning the loss of sacred places. And then Darwin. Okay, so Darwin's basically just mad about a butterfly, but you know, whatever. (laughs) It's fine. So just like they all have kind of like despair is what motivates them, right? Which makes sense because they're all kind of like, they're a manifestation of the Roy's despair, I guess. Yeah. And yeah, when Alexandria asks why Luigi blew him up, himself up and Roy says, you know, he was half a man. He couldn't do it. He gave up. Not very satisfying, is it? And I think like, you know, he's just talking about himself by that point. All these characters yeah. are just, it's just him over and over. Yeah. he He's the one who won't consider the thought of another woman. Yeah. And he's the one who's grieving the loss of something precious, mm. sacred spaces or butterfly. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of talk about brothers... And twins and, like, the loss of a brother being, the, like, in Atabenga's case, it was the loss of his brother that caused him to revolt and free the slaves. And in the bandit's case, it was the loss of his twin that motivated him to, like, he mm-hmm. first had to escape the butterfly island, the butterfly reef, and go and get his brother. But then his brother was killed. And then he was like, well, he's going to swear revenge now. Yeah. But I didn't notice any brothers in the text, like, as a thing. So this seems like more of a something to maybe like a nod back to the idea of a stunt double yeah that's what i thought i thought it was kind of like the ego double situation or you know the, the the doubling of the self because what i noticed was the blue bandit when they first split up when he's retelling that story of you know they decided they had better chance to be when they were separate the blue bandit jumps off a bridge mm. and that recall like that just reminded me of like roy's injury so he jumped off the bridge right and that's how he got injured there's a lot of falling in this yeah yeah the the two the two falls that land um, Alexandria and Roy in the hospital like that's why they're there but then the fall that the movie is referring to is actually the one where she falls it's trying to get the morphine for him I think but you've also got so the Indian's wife jumps you know yeah, she's she... in the labyrinth of despair but she jumps yeah she falls she yeah and um only way to get out the bandit jumps off the bridge he throws the locket and tells Princess Evelyn to follow her heart yeah he throws the heart locket over as if to, like, kind of say, if you want, you can go that way. And the Indian also cuts the rope, and so he also falls. Yeah, that was hard. I think because that's her friend, you know, in real life. That was mm. so much harder for her to, to cope with. But he has no idea about that, right? Because he's talking about an Indian and, in like, the... And a Native American, yeah. Yeah, and she has no concept of that, so she just thinks about her friend. And so you've. I think that's really funny when he's talking about a squaw and a wigwam and she's like no I've got this beautiful you know mental idea of India yeah yeah like the the man who's her friend who works with her in the orchard is a Sikh like it's not Mm. the same at all (laughs) but I do love it I love that that discrepancy turns up and that's one of the examples of her innocence is that she just she puts her frame of reference as Mm. this is what's normal this is what I see so this is what it must be Uh, same with the hanging chandelier thing yeah and that's why I think storytelling is so powerful because you know as I was saying before that's what as an author you've got no control over as a storyteller you can put out a story into the world but you have no idea how someone is going to contextualize that how they're going to interpret that based on their own frame of reference absolutely isn't that a beautiful thing it's good that we have it that way it's good that we get to take those stories and create them ourselves I was actually talking about this with my Harry Potter small group last week where I was saying that one of the things I've always been able to do is like strongly envision place in my mind. Like, so for me, Hogwarts is a specific place that's unrelated to the movies. Mm. And it's still the same as it was when I first read the books when I was like 18 or whatever. And if I were to go back and reread Emily of New Moon, which I know I read for the first time when I was 12, 
24 years later, I'm still going to envision the farm in the exact same way because that place is so vivid to me. And I've returned Mm. there so many times that it's like a real mental location for me. Yeah. I don't really struggle with this concept that, like, you can't imagine something vividly because I've always been able to. Yeah, I'm the same. Like, I have very vivid mental pictures. So I was shocked when I discovered that not everyone has that. Like, people sometimes... You know, they can't picture things in their heads. Oh, yeah. No, my husband, he doesn't have, he doesn't see pictures in his head. But then I was even more shocked when I realized people don't have narratives in their heads either. I'm like, yeah. He also does not have that. Thoughts just appear and like, they're not written words. They're not a voice. They're just the concept itself. What is that? That's witchcraft. I must be so peaceful. I wish the voice in my head would shut up sometimes. I'm like, Jen, I do not care about this. But Jen doesn't want to (laughs) listen. I um, found the mystic's death particularly harrowing. Yeah, yeah. And the mystic was kind of a combination of two people, right? So the mystic was the old man and also one of the men in the orchard, right? Mm. Like the character who played the mystic was not the old man, but it was in fact one of the co-workers, one of her friends from the orange groves, right? Because I had to double check that because I'm like, well, I know that the mystic is meant to be the guy who teaches Mm. her googly, googly, go away. Yeah. But she ends up planting the old man's teeth in the orange grove. And then you see the man who played the mystic behind smiling at her. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Um, You wrote that that was straight out of the Bible, didn't you? You thought that that. Oh, yeah. Because the mystic comes out of the, the tree, the burning tree. And that just reminded me of like the burning bush, which is one of the, you know, original kind of metaphors or whatever narratives in the bible so that's Mm. exodus it's when moses is first like shoulder tapped as being like the guy to go and lead the israelites (laughs) out of egypt being like yo you go do this and it's one of the things that happens is that he sees the burning bush and so like that's what i think of when i see that i'm like here he is he's coming out of the tree like he's been tapped he's gonna lead them on whereas i've read it from like the barrows and like being fairy led and will will of the wisps and something unearthly coming out of a tree that can eat a map and the map then transposes on their skin that can survive poison so much about the mystic was about like what you can conquer yeah i love that whole bug eating map thing when luigi's like i told him not to put the map with the bugs i just think that's (laughs) so dumb and so funny it's definitely a very childlike um a lot of childlike things in here which are just beautiful them yelling across like the vastness of the landscape he said to go to greener pastures what greener pastures where are the greener pastures it is greener down here yeah i just found like his death scene was particularly hard i don't know what it was it just felt really brutal and then i thought it was like really quite dark that roy essentially makes the bandit daughter responsible for otobenga's death it's because she runs away that otobenga goes and gets her and that's because he does that that he then dies and she's like saying i'm sorry i'm sorry over and over again while they like tie her mouth like i'm like whoa that is just intense yeah i think she would feel responsible though because this is her story right and she failed at getting Roy what he needed. Yeah. I don't think she understands it's not about her at that point. It's about his pain and his misery and his despair. Yeah, but that's very true to children, right? Like, there's no way they would get that. They can make that leap. Oh, yeah. I mean, my even my kids, and we're so, we never say, like, it's your fault. We blame you. We've never said that to them, not once. Like, it's just not. If something happens where they've done something that has a consequence, I'll sit there and be like, so you did this and that's what happened. Like, we don't say the words blame, really. But they still have these, like, little internal narratives that come out sometimes they're upset like it's all my fault i'm like what what no that's not no it's just things sometimes terrible things just happen 
Yeah. And Alexandra has this real compulsion to fix things, right? Like, I feel like yeah. she, when she kicks over the, the coffee cup, she's immediately says, I'm sorry. Um, and then when she thinks Roy's dead and she comes back, she comes running in and he's not dead. And she's like, I'll get you more pills. I'm sorry. Like, I'm sorry to upset you. I'll get you more pills. Like, she she jumps to this thing where she's like, I yeah. can get you. Even, I think, in that final scene, she still says, I can get you pills. I'm like, no, stop getting him pills, please. Yes. Um. Actually, something I wanted to talk to you about, I'm interested in your opinion. You know in the wedding scene, you've Mm. got the mystic spotting danger in Roy's palm, right? Yeah. So Roy's already kind of losing consciousness at this point, and then Darwin's interpreting the mystic and saying suicide is not the answer, and if you fall asleep, you'll die. And I just thought that was an interesting internal dialogue for Roy to have. Is that him being like, oh, actually, maybe I don't want to die? I wondered if it was all of the times that Alexandria had overheard it coalescing as the part of the story. Mm. Right? Because he was so out of it. I'm wondering if she wasn't kind of at that point already telling the story too. All of the things that the characters in that bit of storytelling say are things that we've heard other people tell Roy, but only through Alexandria's overhearing him yeah yeah so i i don't know that if that's roy or if it's if it's just her kind of yeah helping tell the story that's helpful because he's so angry when he wakes up the next day like he's so angry that he you know they that there's sugar pills and all these things and he has that whole scene so i was like but why then the wedding scene why is you know that would have sort of been the catalyst where it's like oh actually i i've suddenly realized that i don't want to actually do this you know Mm. which does happen yeah, I, yeah. I think the overwhelming amount of people who attempt and don't succeed talk about that like, oh, thank God. Well, that's the thing. Like, the human instinct to survive is actually so strong. Like, it's biologically so strong. So yeah. we fight this mental battle with ourselves, but physically, we're going to do everything we can to survive. Yeah, and I will say right here, like, without getting too political, this is the number one argument for gun control is that... Mm. It's a lot harder to hurt yourself irrevocably if you don't have bullets. Just saying. Truth. And to hurt other people, but hey, never mind. Well, absolutely. But I I think that there was a really alarming statistic that came out recently that was like a a significant amount of the suicides in the U.S. among young males are gunshots. Like it's a a self-inflicted gunshot wound. Like that's a terrible thing. That is a terrible thing. I just want Roy to have gotten better. I know. And I don't really like... The thing I find interesting is I don't know if he did. Like I think obviously he's gets to a point at the end of the film you know he says to Alexandra we're a strange pair aren't we and he's kind of it seems like he's resolved that he you know he'll keep living and he'll get on with his life and then Alexandra has this moment where she's like oh yeah my mum said he's in movies now and I've seen him in all these things but she's just now seeing him in all stunts yeah he is just all stunt men to her yeah I thought that as well I am not convinced that he actually ever made it back I think that was her mother's way of comforting her yeah I think that was a little lie to kind of protect that innocence that she has. Yeah. Which is why it wasn't just like these people came and burned our house down because of politics, Hungarian landowners and Romanian peoples. It was angry people, right? Mm. Like there are actual things that have happened in this time frame which could be explained away. But for her, it's angry people. Yeah, because it's keep it simple for, you know. Yeah, you, you, you do everything you can to protect your children. So we don't actually know what, we don't know if Roy's going to be okay. Like, we know that Alexandra's going to be okay because she has already kind of moved on in that beautiful way that kids do. Like, you yeah. know, she loved him fiercely and now she's going ahead with life. Yeah, she's young. She's good. She'll be fine. And it's interesting how when you're little, you do have these really intense relationships with people and then <laughs> you never see them again. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And like those connections you have with adults who really shape you, but like they, yeah. they're so liminal in nature. They're so small 
whole in the overall scope of your life. Like there were people that I spent like a decade being friends with who are less important than like my Sunday school teacher of two years when I was a child. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Just in the narrative of my own life. I think Roy is really formative for Alexandria and gives her this. She can't help but look toward a future. She can't help but have that hope. And there's something about her innocence and her ignorance of the awfulness of the world, even though she's mm. experienced it, that really does give her the opportunity to not be despairing. Yeah. She just recovers from it. Yeah, she does. And that's, yeah, I totally agree. I think like her only moments of despair are directly related to Roy's moments of despair. It's like he's infecting her with his despair. Yeah. But otherwise she just kind of bounces back. Like even when she's afraid, she just kind of bounces back. Yeah. Kids are amazing, man. Kids are amazing. We should never lose sight of that, but they do. The world breaks us down. Oh, well, now I've had a good cry for Aww. like the third time today. The last 10 minutes, it just gets me every time. It's harrowing. But he does promise her. I have. I think I have to believe that he stays alive and yeah. slowly works toward getting better. Yeah, I believe that too. I think she broke him down at the end there. Like he just feels too, too responsible or kind of beholden to her, I guess. He let her have the ending she wanted, which yeah. I think was a beautiful act of love. And I hope that in moments in his life when he feels really sad or despairing that he can remember Alexandria and that's like a little bright spot for him. Yeah, like a personal token of, yeah. you know, he really was sent something very small to save him. She can be his Patronus. <laughs> his Eucharist. Yeah. <laughs> oh, sorry. I'm just so weepy now. Oh, <laughs> it's lovely. I love that art can do this. It's I feel like if I'm going to have big feelings about something, I want it to be not something I have to deal with in my real life. Yeah, fair enough. I want to be able to have some distance from it, so. And it's just a beautiful piece of art. It really is. Um, I think one of my favorite visuals is the blood-soaked sheet. Oh, yeah. How it goes from the coffee on the linen napkin to the blood-soaked sheet. Mm. That little handkerchief or napkin or whatever it was that he had is um is a type of thread work, I think, where you actually pull the threads out and then you get this really interesting pattern in the, the edges of the like the linen. And it's a really beautiful nod to the craftsmanship of the... And t- like all of the set design is amazing because they didn't build anything, but like all of the costuming and mm. I just noticed a lot of the details with the textiles and that was one that really caught my eye. And then how it That's changed cool. his hand pressing down on the, the red. Yeah. Which wasn't really that tall. I think that was one of the few um, cheats they used was they used duplication in that scene to make it look much taller. They didn't really use CGI or anything in this film. And just the the extent they went to to find these places to shoot these amazing scenes. Like they've basically just gone to all the most interesting places in the world and just shot these amazing scenes. And apparently it's because Tarsim Singh was doing a lot of commercial work. So he's doing lots yeah. of ads, lots of music videos. And whenever he was on a like really exotic scene, he'd just be like, right, we're going to shoot here. It's just such an interesting way to make a film. It's really great because it showcases an opportunity to create something really different. And I mean, I think, I think Roger Ebert said there will never be another film like it. And that's absolutely true. We're never going to see something that's quite this scale and made with this kind of haphazard intentionality. And you know what I think it is, like, and this is going to sound real, like, dumb, but <laughs> it's because it is a labor of love. Like, he made it out of his own pocket. He didn't have studio backing. This is just the story that he wanted to tell. When 90%, probably more, 
of the films that get made get made to make money, right? Like, yeah. you know, they're not made to be amazing stories. They're made to turn a profit. Whereas this was never about that. Yeah, this was made to tell a story and to tell a specific story. I think he, I read an interview where he said it was kind of like an exorcism for him. It's something that he just needed to get out. Uh, I really understand him because this is how I approach writing. <laughs> the story, like, I'm not crafting something. I'm getting rid of it. It's in getting me and I want it you. out of me. <laughs> yeah. There was so much of this that I thought connected to other pieces of media, but one that I that really stood out to me was the mystics, the way the mystic spoke and the way the mystic was spoken to. So Darwin used gesture as a way of communicating with him, and the mystic actually spoke in gibberish, mm. which is a recurring theme with Alexandria and Roy. He always teases her about writing in gibberish, but... It made me think of the OA, which is a show that's actually quite incredible and very similar in the feel of what's happening. But the entire premise of the OA is that they learn these dances and it can like access a different dimension or it can change reality, it bends reality in a way. And it's all used it's through the use of dance or gesture. And it was just that one little bit of their different communications between the mystic and, and Darwin and how Darwin interpreted and then reinterpreted back for the mystic made me think of that yeah that's interesting did anything else leap out at you well you know what the first thing i always think of is uh as you know i am a big fan of uh, emo music released between <laughs> from 2000 <laughs> the early 2000s to now and one of my favorite bands is fallout boy and i think it was in 2013 they released an album save rock and roll which has got the song young volcanoes on it and it's got a lyric in it where it says americana exotica and every time i hear that i think of this <laughs> film <laughs> Because of the butterfly. It's got nothing to do with it. But every time I'm like, oh, is this a nod? Have, have they seen this film too? I just need people to see this film. It is a really good film. It's hard to watch though. But I'm also yeah. weirdly protective of it. Like You wouldn't show it to just anybody. Yeah, I can't share it with anyone because I think it'll kill me if they don't like it. Maybe it's because I love stories, right? And I love the idea of storytelling. And so yeah. there's something incredibly personal about this. But the idea that someone wouldn't understand what is happening in this film kind of upsets me. So so I've never, like, this is one of my all-time favorite films and I love it. And I mm. never showed it to my ex. Like, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. Having met him, I can see how you got there, though. Like, it's not anything against his character or whatever. Like, I'm not trying to make this, like, a better than or worse than thing. But I can see that, like, there are definitely some people who you wouldn't watch this movie with. And yeah, I can see that. And I have a friend who I adore and we always watch films together. And I just, you know, she loves stories and things. But I just, I don't, I don't think this would land and I can't do it. I gotta protect it. Which is yeah. probably why no one knows about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it's um, like an internal cult classic. It's our cult that we love. I just love that it's held up so well. Yeah, same. And man, Lee Pace should have... He... It's just glorious. And so tall. There's not enough tall actors. Yeah, they're all I'm miniature. Trying to think what we can cast him in. He's my mental model for one of my main characters on this thing I've been working on, so... I mean, he is my mental model for a ideal partner, but never mind. <laughs> What about if we do the Iliad and have him be Achilles? Thoughts? <laughs> That's on my list to read sometime this year. Actually, I think I'm waiting for Emily Wilson's the new translations. translations. Yeah, smart. Maybe he could be Dumbledore. Oh, yeah. He'd be a great Dumbledore. Um, Did you want to spotlight any characters? Oh, gosh. It's hard to choose, isn't it? I thought I would go for someone who's not a maiden character. It's really hard to choose between the two of them. I am going to actually spotlight Alexandria's mum, who is all alone in this strange land. You know, she doesn't speak the language. Is obviously worried about her daughter who is in hospital and then 
clearly lying to her mum about what the doctor is saying and then what yeah. she is saying to the doctor. Like, obviously, there's a miscommunication happening there. And I just think that must be so scary and so stressful. And her mum's just, you know, widowed with these kids and she's just trying to do her best and she deserves a little shout out. Absolutely. I am absolutely, that's who I wanted to spotlight as well. I kept thinking about what I would feel like if my daughter was in the hospital away from me for weeks and weeks and it was hard for me to get to her. Mm. I couldn't imagine how much I, like, my daughter went on a sleepover at her Nana's place last week and she was gone for 26 hours and I counted them and I missed her so much. (laughs) Like, it was, she had a wonderful time and she was so happy to see me and I was just like, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay, but that's my baby, so... I know that when you have a sick kid and that you're not able to be with them, that is just the worst. I can't imagine. I can't imagine not being able to communicate with the doctors. I can't imagine not having a partner and having another child to worry about and having to hold down a full-time manual labor job. Well, imagine her coming back to the hospital thinking her daughter's just in there with a broken arm because, you know, it's the 1920s and she doesn't know that she's now cracked her head open. And yeah. like, now she's going to be in there even longer. Oh, it's just so Mm-mm. scary, isn't it? Um. Yeah, so Alexandria's mum, definitely. Big shout out to all the mums who often go underappreciated. I really appreciate you all. And especially the immigrant mums who are doing it tough. You're out there kicking butt and taking names and it is hard. And the single mums, good lord. Absolutely. Massive props to you. Um, Next week we're going to start reading Strange the Dreamer. Very excited. Oh, I'm excited. Um... So we're going to start with um, prologue through chapter six, I think, through the theme Mm -hmm. of expectations. So I am really excited to start it. I think it'll be a return to some really lyrical language for us, which is where we started. Mm. So, yeah, I'm excited to take my time with it and really get into it. Yeah, this has been super fun. I'm really excited about our next one shot, which I think we've decided was Thor Ragnarok. So, yeah. And you know what's exciting about that? We can probably do that together because that's when I'm going to be in Sydney. Yay! So, yes. Everybody, keep your germs to yourself, okay? I <laughs> yes, really please. want Jen to come visit. Like, <laughs> if there are any outbreaks, I swear to God. We will riot. Well, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. It has been wonderful. Thank you. I'm so glad we did this. And it was hard to do this with a movie. It was very difficult to, like, not have my highlighting to look back on. So, yeah, it's a different kind of use a different part of the brain in a way almost. So, yeah, it's good. Flexing muscles. I didn't know I had. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well, I will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining Jen D and Jen V for this one shot. Martin Ailey Pod is written, edited, and produced by Jen D and Jen V, with additional editing and production support by Simon B. If you enjoy listening, please rate and review the show on your podcasting platform of truth. Feel free to write an email to say hi. The email address is hello at martinaleypod.com. The intro and outro music is by Scott Buckley. The full show notes and additional content can be found at www.martinaleypod.com. Mm-hmm.